0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, as always, for the many ways in which you give us opportunity to participate in your work. And that's the way you you have always done it, Father. You've always invited men and women into the work that you have. And, Father, some will take you up on the offer and some will not. But you are so gracious. You're so kind, merciful, patient. You don't just take one answer, Father. We may say yes in one moment and no another, but you'll come back over and over again. As we see in the word and as we see in our own experience, Father, you are tireless in the work that you have and in the opportunities you afford us. Thank you, Lord, that you do that. Thank you that you know better than we do sometimes where we should be participating and how you can be using us. And so you you woo us and you encourage us and you exhort us. And by your word principally, Father, you show us that those who have come alongside in obedience have been rewarded. And we celebrate their names in Scripture even today. While at the same time, Father, there are those who have declined the opportunity to work side by side with you, and we've learned their lessons as well. Father, in Judges, we see both today. And I pray, Lord, you would convict us as we read the Scriptures, as we hear the teaching, that you would convict each of us in how we can do more to serve you, not in our own effort, but by relying on you, by working with you in the work you already have planned. So that your your name would be glorified and the nations would come to know you. We ask that this might be what you do with what you teach today, Father. But whatever you choose to do, Father, just direct our ears and our hearts toward that truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapter 4. Last time we were introduced to Deborah and to Barak. The partnership that God forged to defeat the enemy of Israel that he brought into the land. Deborah, you remember, is the judge. Well, Barak is Israel's key military leader of the day, Deborah being a woman, of course, Barak being a man. And when the Lord was ready to free Israel from the oppression of the Canaanite king in the land, he called Barak to go into battle. Deborah told Barak that the Lord had appointed him to lead the battle and that now was the day that there was to be a victory and he was to go up and claim it. And so Barak was to travel north. He was to recruit 10,000 men from two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali, and that these 10,000 Jews were then to go against the king, Jabin, of the Canaanites and that they would find victory against this man, despite the fact that he had an overwhelmingly more powerful military force. And as you remember, Barak, as he contemplated all of that, the difficulty of what he was being asked to do, the effort of recruiting 10,000 men, the thought of defeating a powerful entrenched enemy like Javan, as he contemplated all that, he insisted that Deborah go with him in order to ensure his success. And as we saw, Deborah agreed, but she did so begrudgingly. And she said, because of this hesitation on Barak's part, Barak would not be allowed to see the victory. That in the end, though the victory would come, it wouldn't be credited to him. Instead, she says, this victory will be won by a woman. And she wasn't talking about herself. So Barak believed the Lord. He believed that the Lord was speaking through Deborah. But he lacked the confidence in that word to act as God proclaimed, as God prescribed. And so last week we noticed his response reflected not only his own weakness as a man who hesitated to walk in the full counsel of God's word. It also reflected the state of the society in this point in Israel's history, the state of leadership in the nation among the men particularly. And as we looked at the text, as we looked at what was going on, we made the point that men in Israel, not necessarily all men, but as a rule, as a general rule, men in Israel were doubting while women were picking up the slack. And as a result of this imbalance in leadership, the nation was suffering. But friends, this is a nation that is in covenant with a covenant-keeping God, which means that though the Lord was not pleased with what Barak was saying, nevertheless, through Deborah and Barak's efforts, the Lord was going to win this victory, and he takes them into battle. So Deborah and Barak go up from the hill country of Ephraim to Kadesh, which is a town in the center of Naphtali's territory, up where these recruits are going to be found. And there, north of Hazor, which is the town where the king of Canaan lives, north of Hazor, they assemble and plan for the attack. Look at verse 10. Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Well, let's begin by looking at what's happening geographically as well as politically or militarily. First, Barak assembles the 10,000 men from the two tribes that he's told to assemble them from at Kadesh. And it doesn't appear as though this is a particularly difficult effort, does it? He arrives and then it says 10,000 men show up. It's almost as if, and it's not clearing necessarily in the text, but it would seem as if the 10,000 men self-selected and showed up, much like the animals that came to the ark. God said it and it happened. Well, first thing on the list, check. Not too hard, was it? And then we hear Samuel introduce a new family, a new character in this story, a family living in the same general area. It is Heber, the Kenite or Kenite, and he's living near Kadesh, which is where they have gone, where Barak and Deborah have gone. Now, a little background on the Kenites would help you understand what's going on here. The Kenites were descended from Hobab, which you heard in the text. Hobab is the father-in-law of Moses. So that means the Kenites were not Jewish. They descended from the family that Moses married into when he went into Midian between the time when he escaped Egypt and when he returned to Egypt. So Midian is part of present-day Saudi Arabia. So this is the family Moses married into. But nevertheless, though they were not Jewish, they were always supportive of the Jews, primarily because of Moses' connection to that family. Remember in chapter 1, you may remember back in this book in chapter 1, we learned that the Kenites followed Joshua and the Jews into the land out of the desert. They came into the Promised Land. So even after 40 years of wandering in the desert, Moses' extended family, the Kenites, had attached themselves to the wandering Jews and and wandered with them, it appears. And then when the time finally came for them to cross the Jordan and enter into the promised land, they went in with them. So this is a group of people, a family of Kenites, who migrated into the land, though they are not Jewish. And in chapter 1, we hear that they principally settle in Judah, in southern Canaan. Now we hear, though, here in Judges 4, we learn of one particular part of that family... A man named Heber and his immediate family, they separated themselves from the rest of the Kenites. They moved from the south in Judah, north into this area of Kadesh, which is in the northern area of Canaan, of present-day Israel. And they settle in a place called Zananim, by an oak tree, as it turns out. His name, Heber, it means ally. And that reflects his double-agent life. Because this is a guy who, though his family is sympathetic to the Jews and have been allies of the Jews for so long, he has consciously separated himself from them and moved north and has made a good living now as an ally of the Canaanite king. So he's worked both sides. In fact, the word Canaanite means blacksmith. And it's very likely that the Canaanites made their living that way, that they were a family primarily of blacksmiths. And what is it that makes The Canaanite king so strong militarily iron iron on those chariots. So it would seem as though and it's not clear in the text, but it does seem to suggest by the virtue of the fact that Samuel introduces him. It seems to suggest that this guy is principally responsible for making the very iron that is making it so hard for Israel to defeat this king. So he's clearly got mixed allegiances at the very least. So here you have this man who's not a Jew consorting with the enemy of God's people, and yet maintaining a distant relationship to God's people, at least indirectly. Then you have the king's commander, Cicero. Now Cicero, we're told, learns that Barak has amassed his army at Mount Tabor, which on a map, Mount Tabor is about twenty five miles southwest, and the directions and the geography are going to become important here, so if you're not if you're not good at keeping this in your head, you might want to draw a little map somewhere on the side of your Bible. But anyway, you have a place about 25 miles southwest of Hazor. Hazor is the town in which the king lives. This is his Washington, D.C. This is his primary headquarters. Southwest, you have Mount Tabor butting up against the Jezreel Valley, and you have the massing of barracks forces there. Sisera, now, what do you think he's going to do when he hears this? Well, he moves his 900 chariots and his entire army From its home base, which is near Hazor to the Valley of Kishon, which is at the base of Mount Carmel, which is an additional 14 miles west of where Barak is at Mount Tabor. If this is Hazor and here is Mount Tabor, Cicero went all the way over here to a place at the base of Mount Carmel to the Kishon River Valley. So he goes all the way to the opposite side. Now, when you see this, this is a very unexpected and even nonsensical military move because Barak would have assumed everyone would have assumed that when you position your forces 25 miles away from Washington, D.C., so to speak, that sister would come out from Washington, D.C. to set up a line of defense there to keep your army between the enemy and the home city that you're defending. But Sisera doesn't do that. Sisera goes out of his way to go around and attack from the opposite side, sort of a flanking maneuver. Now, why is this important? Well, think about it. What did Deborah tell Barak to expect when he was first given the orders to go up and defeat the king? At the beginning of chapter 4, he tells Barak exactly how he will win, or at least the broad strokes of the plan. Back in verse 7, The Lord said he would draw Sisera and his many troops to the river Kishon. That Hebrew word translated draw is the same word you you could translate it pull, as in like drag. So the Lord literally drags Sisera away from the logical place, from his home base, so to speak, and from the natural fighting position and pulls him all the way out into the edges of the countryside to a place you would not expect him to go. Now, Barak's up in in Mount Tabor. He's got his army of 10,000. He knows God said he's going to win. He's not sure how he's going to do it. Next thing you know, he's told Sisera just marched all the way around and he's over at none other than Kishon, right where God said he would go. There is no military explanation for this move, but there is a supernatural explanation for this move, isn't there? God moving pieces on a chessboard just as he promised, and that becomes Barak's confirmation that God is doing exactly what he said he would do, which then would suggest that you can take the rest of God's word as gospel as well. And that means you should expect to win. But look what happens. When Sisera makes this move, it would appear again, I'm reading a little into the text, but it would appear as though Barak hesitates again. I say that because in verse 14, you see Deborah having to command Barak to get up and prosecute the attack at this point. And we know Deborah's not a military leader. There's nothing to suggest that she had special military insight to tell Barak exactly the right moment for the timing of this attack. It seems rather that she simply saw the obvious sign, stared at this guy who's sitting there on his thumbs and says, you know, maybe now is be a good time to attack because the Lord's doing exactly what he said. The Lord is at work already. That's her point. He's in Kishon. Hello, Kishon. That's it. That's the sign. The Lord said, look for Sisra to move to Kishon. And now that he's there, attack. But Barak doesn't seem to move, it would appear, at least until Deborah makes this point. She repeats to Barak, the Lord has delivered him into your hands. And in fact, he's gone out before you. So why don't you just get up and join the Lord in the work that he's clearly already doing on your behalf. Now you understand, I think, a little better why Deborah went with Barak in the first place. Because although I see in him a desire to serve God, I don't don't mean to suggest this man is unwilling to do what God wants him to do. It's a little more subtle than that. This is a man who is unclear about how to take leadership into his own hands, how to be the person God is calling him to be. The hesitation is an indication of spiritual immaturity. Because the Lord is going to win this battle. There's never been any doubt about that. He said as much. All Barak has to do is come along for the ride. But even that's asking a lot of this guy. Apparently, there is very little he has to do. And even that the very little which is just coming along is more than he's capable of doing. It seems without a prod to keep him going in that direction. At best, he's just there to witness God win the battle and he can't muster enough courage to be a witness. It requires a woman to drag Barak into battle to save Israel. Friends, spiritual leadership isn't just acting brave in difficult moments. It's being prepared spiritually to put leadership into action when it's necessary. I think a lot of men and, and I'm speaking to the men for just a moment. I think a lot of men, husbands, fathers, I think we have all the good intentions in the world. And in an academic moment, we can talk at length about the need for spiritual maturity and leadership and taking ownership, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that counts for nothing. If when God shows us the timing and makes clear the need, we sit and we say, well, how do I know it's now? How do I know it's me? Maybe I should just wait a little longer. Maybe somebody else should do it. Husbands and fathers are called by God to serve as spiritual leaders in their homes. We covered this, as you remember, last week. But a lot of guys assume that calling means taking dramatic life or death action when necessary to protect the family. They, they, they sort of put it in these stark terms. You know, that's what spiritual leadership looks like. It's the kind of attitude that says, I'll take a bullet for my wife. They imagine the scenario when the robber comes in in the middle of the night and they're going to stand in front of their wife and their kids and they're going to die for their kids. And that's spiritually being a leader and taking the slings and arrows, so to speak. But friends, for any man who thinks like that, that's fine. I'm glad you're willing to do that. But do you pick up your own underwear? (laughs) Do you do the dishes when, when she asks you to? In other words, if you're prepared to take the big roles and imagine scenarios that are so important, but you're not willing to do it in the everyday sense, then you're in a way you're, you're kind of like Barrick. You need that woman to drag you into the moment when you should have been there before she was. And you're doing it in a way that, that as I like to say, sucks energy and spiritual power from the woman because you're not willing to, to sort of bring it out of yourself. A man won't be prepared, in my opinion, to take the role of leader as God intended unless they are thinking and preparing for that role in an everyday way. Because the big things, you know, the taking the bullet for your wife thing, that may never happen. Hopefully the things that happen every day, though, are the things in which spiritual maturity is really important and really comes to bear. You can't expect to live selfish, self-centered lives for years as a man and ignore God's word or hesitate to follow in the spirit and make that a pattern in your life and then assume that when the spiritual crisis shows up, suddenly you'll break out of that pattern and you'll be well equipped to just handle whatever comes. If that's how you're living, that doesn't work that way. I've never seen it work that way. When your teenagers rebel against authority, you're suddenly going to be the spiritual leader that can take control of that situation and put them on the straight and narrow when you weren't doing it when they were 3, 5, 10 or whatever. I don't think it works that way. Or when your marriage gets rocky or when your health fails. In other words, when stresses show up in the life of a family, that husband had better be someone who has been practicing listening to God and applying what they learn on a regular basis because you can't snap into that way of thought in the middle of a crisis. In fact, Crises are such that they test your ability to even do the normal things healthy, much less step up to the big things. When anything puts a stress on a family, where will you turn? Barak and the other men of Israel, as Samuel has made clear by the way he's constructed this whole chapter, they were not, as a rule, practicing, listening to the Lord, and obeying. So that even when a strong word came with clear signs that were fulfilled in their very presence, They could not muster the courage to see it for what it was and take a step of action. Yet God, in mercy, sent a woman who would save the day by compensating for that weakness, which is at least a slight bit of encouragement to to any of us in here who may be feeling like, well, you know, I kind of haven't done what, what I'm hearing I should have done. Okay, well, the past is the past. God's hopefully sent you a woman who will help you get back on your feet. But now's the time to stop leaning against her and to start leading her. Leading in the family in the right way. But in Barak's case, God is going to send yet another woman to save the day because of his continued hesitation to take matters into his own hands and because of what he proclaimed back at the beginning. So Barak is going to have another woman win this battle. But before that moment, we still need to see Barak do his part in doing what God has called him to do. So that begins in verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots, and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Job and the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. So just as God said, Israel routes this army. Now, notice Samuel is careful here to emphasize how that battle was won. He says the Lord wins this battle. Barak was not the cause of the outcome, though the Lord used him, of course, and his men as well, which he assembled for the fight. But it was the Lord who secured the victory. Still, let's give credit to where credit is due. What do we give Barak credit for here? Well, I think at the very least you give him credit for entering into the battle. I mean, we have to at least acknowledge that much. That's not trivial. Going to war is never easy. Putting your life on the line in that way is not a small thing. Yes, yeah, so he has to get credit for that. But Deborah had to encourage him so we remember that it was not all his own doing. But in the end, he takes his troops into battle and he goes up against a much better equipped army, one that he probably should have no business thinking he would win except that God would bring that outcome. What would give Barak reason to take such a risk? At the end of it all, for all we've said about this man, why did he go into battle? Why would he dare attack an army? that on paper was undefeatable with what he was bringing into the battle. Well, the answer is faith. And that may seem counter to what you would expect, given all that we've said about this man and all the nasty things I may have implied about him. But at the end of it all, Barak's faith brought him into that battle. And the faith here is specific to the word of God. He heard the prophecy of Deborah that said you would go in and you would win. He had the sign. Then Deborah pointed out its fulfillment. And then he rose up and he entered into battle. The fact that he needed prodding does not by itself diminish the reality that at the end of it all, he went into battle out of faith. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, his name appears in the hall of faith as an example of one who lived in faith. So remember that as you consider Barak. But it was his lack of confidence in leading God's people that caused his hesitation. And that's the danger, as we've said, when men fail to accept their God-given role as spiritual leaders. It's like a muscle that you either use or it atrophies. And in his case, he was not accustomed to using it. And it took the efforts of Deborah to keep him in the game. Thankfully, he had a woman to help keep him going like many husbands and fathers have the blessing of the same. So we are not told now how Barak won. Despite the fact that God did it, you still would like to know how did God do it? How was he able to defeat an army with 900 chariots? You end up finding that out in chapter 5. So we will wait till chapter 5 to get the answer on how he won the battle. Don't want to get ahead of the scriptures, right? Meanwhile, this victory is incomplete because Sisera, the commander of the other army, has escaped. He, he jumps off his chariot when it becomes clear to him that he's going to lose, and he runs away. Without Sisera's head, Barak can't declare A full victory here because his escape, Cicero's escape, leaves open the possibility that he could muster a new army and counterattack in the near future. So that you can't really say you've won until you get him out of the game. So if he isn't killed, the regime's overthrow is in question. Cicero ends up seeking refuge in, of all places, this home of Heber. This is why Samuel introduced this man earlier. Heber is apparently near this battle, living east of the battle. And as Sisera approaches the campsite of Heber, he must assume that he is going to protect him because, as we hear, there's peace between Heber and the king. And that's, a, again, a result, I think, of Heber probably working for the king. When he comes into the camp, he first approaches the tent of Heber's wife, Jael. Now, that's a huge error on Sisera's part. He must have counted Heber as being sympathetic with Canaanites, which is obviously the truth because Heber was helping. But the mistake Sisera made was in assuming that Heber's wife felt the same way. She doesn't. She feels very differently about Canaanites. Look at verse 18. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug. He said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. He said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be, if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here? Then you shall say no. But Jael, Hebrew's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground. For he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. It's just a great book, isn't it? Some of you are disagreeing, but I like that, so... You know, it's funny, though. They don't typically use this story as fodder for the children's Sunday school stories. I, I, I've never understood that. It seems like there'd be great pictures for this one. But all right, this is why I'm in here. And there's different people over there. So Zisra approaches the tent. Now, he notices it's the tent of Heber's wife, obviously. And that must have caused him to hesitate to enter for a lot of reasons. First, by custom. I mean, it would have been highly inappropriate for a man to enter another man's wife's tent. And then secondly, he's got to wonder a little bit about her intentions and whether this could turn out to be something that works against him. You know, would he be accused of something? So so he hesitates. But Jael sees the hesitation. She tries to overcome it. She welcomes him. She says, verse 18, turn aside. That's just another way of saying, come to me. Let me help you turn aside from where you're going and turn into where I am so that I can help you. And then she says, don't be frightened. Meaning, don't let this break in custom worry you. Uh, I understand what you're trying to do. So Cestra must have considered what she was saying, and then he must have thought that this is a pretty crafty plan. She's pretty smart. Because who would think to look for him in the tent of Heber's wife? This is the last place you would expect a man to be found in those days. So he enters with the intent to hide, and he assumes she's on his side and that this is all part of her plan, and he's happy to take advantage of it. Only she has an entirely different purpose in mind. So he goes in first, she covers him with a rug, and he asks for water, but she gives him milk. Now, you may wonder, why that detail? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One we'll we'll cover now, one in a minute. First, milk was considered a preferable drink to water. That'd be like, you know, you go into someone's house and saying, can I have something to drink? And you're thinking water, and they offer you juice. You're like, oh, well, that's even better. Diet Coke, hey, didn't even know you had that. Sure, I'll take that instead. That's the mindset. Milk was a preferable drink in that day harder to obtain, more clean, more tasty, and so on. So it makes him feel even more welcomed. It also has the effect, especially when you're already kind of tired and wiped out, it just puts you to sleep. It makes you feel comfortable, makes you drowsy. That's all a part of Jael's plan. Finally, as he's about to fall asleep, Sisera tells Jael, look, stand guard for me, tell anyone who comes that I'm not actually here. That's a demanding request because what he's doing is he is asking her to lie, and as a result, he's putting her life at risk. Because if she's found out, if they did find Sisera, she'd be killed along with him. That's a pretty demanding request of your host, isn't it? So he's, he's obviously not afraid to, to make that bold request. Then he falls asleep. She covers him back with a rug. Now, he thinks the rug is about hiding him, right? She has other plans. So Sisera was expecting Heber's family to grant refuge, but he did not expect that Heber's own wife was not a friend of Canaanite's. Instead, it appears she's still loyal to the Jewish people, the ones who brought her and her family out of the land of desert and into the land of promise. So she knows the Canaanites are enemies of God. She's probably not happy with the fact that her husband has allied with them. But as a woman in that culture, she could do nothing about it. So she has her chance now. She has her chance to do something good by way of God's people. So when she sees Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, I mean, second only to the king, show up on her doorstep, obviously looking for help, obviously fearing something. She knows something is amiss. Now, she may not have understood there was a battle that just took place, but that doesn't matter. What she did know is, this guy's in trouble. He needs my help. This is my opportunity. So with her quick thinking, she gains the opportunity to defeat the enemy. He falls asleep, and as the story goes, and the best part of it, of course, she comes back with a mallet and this wooden tent peg. She comes silently. She knows somewhere in the rug this is about where his head is, and she just goes, Wow. And she's pretty strong, you notice, because it goes all the way into the ground. This is a woman who was not hesitating. This is a woman who knew exactly what she wanted. And she put her whole body weight into it. She probably even got a couple of swings going. And then, I mean, this detail is not just gratuitous. It's important. It, It demonstrates confidence, strength, intent, purpose. No hesitation by this woman. She puts an end to him. Verse 21 says it drove all the way into the ground. Sisera never knew what hit him. He was so exhausted, he was dead tired. He was out before his head hit the pillow. I can go on. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Samuel has constructed the details of the story. Now, he didn't manufacture it, but, you know, like any author, you can tell a story with a certain angle. And he's been very careful to tell the story of chapter 4 with a certain angle. A certain point in mind. And the point is the one we've been hitting on all along. The, the weakness of the men in the culture and the way that had come to undermine the spiritual strength of his people. And conversely, the need for women to take charge and to be strong as a result of the gap that had been created by the men. That's the theme. That's the point, And all its ramifications. But look at the imagery of this moment and how it reinforces that point. You have Sisera, a mighty warrior, wrapped in a rug like a baby, sleeping with a tummy full of milk. This impotent, helpless man, who is ostensibly the leader of a great army. And who's calling the shots? If you go back and you look at the story, with each step and each turn, it's the woman. Jael, she says what to do, how to do it. She drives the whole process, even from the beginning of saying, come into my tent. Now, once again, this scene is painting men in the land as dependent on women for their very lives and support. Cicero was too weak to defend himself. He needed a woman to hide him, to make him comfortable, to protect him, to feed him, to lie for him. I've known too many husbands that could actually fit that description. How did Jell expect to get away with this assault? How could we even congratulate her for doing this? I assume that she never had to say anything. Because think about it. A woman with a man in her tent that's not her husband, what would she do naturally? Naturally, you assume bad intentions. Naturally, you defend yourself. Who's to say differently? And in fact, she was in her right by law to do exactly what she did for a man to come into her tent under those circumstances. And as far as judging her behavior from the biblical point of view, remember the Canaanites and the Jews were at war at this point. So had Barak found Sisera, what would he have done? He would have killed him. He would have killed the the commander, right? Because that's what he was called to do by God. In fact, he killed every single other member of Sisera's army, right? They've all been killed. So Jael is simply acting like another combatant. She's allied with the nation of Israel. She's fighting with them. So she acted in their defense. She kills the man that God wanted killed through the army. In fact, if you go back further in history, God commanded that all the Canaanites be driven out of the land and there be no mercy for any of them. And the fact that Israel didn't do that in the first place was their mistake. So they're all under a death sentence, if you want to think of it in those terms. But the fact that it had to be a woman to do it says a lot. So when Barak arrives looking for Sisera, Jael courageously comes forward. She reveals the man. And then the Lord's second prophecy concerning Barak is fulfilled. Barak was told he would secure a great military victory. But because he hesitates, that victory would not come at his hands. It would come through a woman. And that woman would get all the glory for the story. And sure enough, Now you see it happening. Jael is that woman, exactly as the Lord declared. And it's exactly to Barak's shame. Even as you remember this part and you see him in the story, and we have him mentioned even in the book of Hebrews, it's no doubt that his victory has been diminished by his weakness, right? That he couldn't finish the job and that God let a woman do it in such a particular way. It's not enough that you follow the Lord in the end. Yes, following him is always better than not following him. But you don't want to be too quick to congratulate yourself for eventually following the Lord. That's not really the testimony you want to have when you're talking about your obedience. We need to understand that true obedience says, send me, Lord, I will go. And it means now. And that was where Barak fell short. The best kind of faith, the mature and strong faith doesn't depend on a sign, even if the Lord is willing to grant one. And true obedience means assuming that the role the Lord has appointed for you either in your family or your church or in the world is one that you will not shrink back from. It is one you will embrace. That's what true biblical faith looks like when it's lived out. So if you are a father, if you are a husband, then let me tell you that you cannot assume that spiritual leadership is there by inheritance, that you got it at birth. It's a role you have to cultivate and you have to pursue. And don't let your wife drag you into that obedience don't be satisfied that she knows the Bible and you don't. Or don't be satisfied she goes to church on your behalf. Don't be satisfied she volunteers and chalk it up to the family volunteers. That's not how it works. Don't advocate your responsibility to teach your kids the word of God. And if you aren't feeling qualified to do some of the things that you know spiritual maturity expects of you, well, then you better get serious about your own study time and about your own process of maturity so that you will be qualified to do it. Lack of effort will not be excused at the judgment seat of Christ. And your kids, by the way, aren't getting any younger anyway, so you better hurry up. Now, if you're a wife or a mother, then don't let your husband's spiritual laziness, if it exists, become excuse to slow down in your own walk. In the end, every person gives an account to the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ for their life of service, one way or the other. So you have to press on, with or without your husband. Don't let him off the hook, though. Encourage him, challenge him, and model obedience for him. And then pray the Lord will bring him along. And then finally, if you happen to be one of those couples, or as an individual living by yourself, in which you are walking with the Lord, or both couples, both members of the family are walking with the Lord, the husband leading, the woman close at his side, well then, praise the Lord, because that's what you want. And you'll have to cultivate that, because it won't stay on its own. The Lord's going to accomplish great things through that. But the enemy is prepared to do everything he can to tear it down at the same time. So don't take it for granted. And even in my own marriage, as much as I'd like to think my wife and I have arrived, there's struggles. There's times in which one of us is ahead of the other and things aren't always smooth. That's normal. That's why it's a work in progress. And the Lord is the one, remember, who wins those victories. You don't do it in your own flesh. To finish the chapter, verse 23. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Isn't it interesting that this whole chapter seems to be about how the Israelites were taken out from under the oppression of Jabin and restored in the land, like we've seen in the first two turns of this cycle. That seems to be what you think the chapter is about. And yet really only one verse is devoted to that outcome. Verse 24 to the ultimate destruction of the king. But the rest of the chapter, the rest of the chapter is narrowly focused on the state of leadership in the nation concerning the men and the women. Verse 23, at the end of the day, the Lord won that victory, not Deborah, not Barak, not even Jael. The Lord made the events come to pass as he determined. And it was all in keeping with his purpose to chastise the people, then ultimately to redeem them. But as we said, notice in verse 24, he accomplished those things through the hands of obedient Servants By the hands of Israel, we're told the Lord brought him to his end, Jabin to his end. We always remember the Lord is sovereign in all the events of our lives. But remember, he also accomplishes his purposes through the hands of obedient servants. So the rule is you can obey and you can become useful to God and he will use you in some way. Or you can shrink back and you can watch him accomplish that work through someone else because it's going to happen one way or another. And you just may forego the reward. Or suffer in other ways as a result of disobedience, the Lord has a myriad of ways in which He can get our attention. But more than anything, notice in chapter four that the effect of a culture or a community or a church or a family in which you have a disproportionate degree of leadership burden falling on the women instead of where it belongs on the men will contribute to the kind of spiritual weakness throughout that brings suffering we don 't want that for our families, we don 't want that for our church we don't want that for our community. It doesn't require that the women change anything. It requires that the men step up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you Lord for a reminder of what you've done in this time of history in Israel's past but Father also what you do in the lives of men and women throughout history. Thank you Father for Barak and his example. As a man, Father, I can see myself in him at times. I know what's right. I've seen the the word of God, and yet, Father, I hesitate. Thank you, Father, for a wife that will prompt my obedience. Father, I can also thank you for Deborah, for a woman who is intelligent and bold, or a woman like Jael who is courageous and decisive. We thank you, Father, that you do not simply equip one or the other in humanity with with these traits, but that women and men share them equally. But Father, in your economy, you've also made clear that you have put the burden on men to take control of of the spiritual growth and life in a family and to be those who would model it and to live it out, to sacrifice for the family, to be um, models, as Christ was for the church, of those who would give themselves up for the family and who would contend with the enemy on their behalf. Things work, Father, when we follow your word. I pray that would be the way we approach our lives. And, Father, for those who are feeling ill-equipped or weak or just unable to begin or confused about how, Father, I pray you would clarify that. Bring clarity, bring certainty, bring courage, bring wisdom so that we would not hesitate. And then as we make those changes in our life, Father, I pray that it would have a magnificent effect not only in the individual's life but in their family but in our church as a whole, that there would be such great fruit from it it would encourage more of the same. Let us be a model to one another in that way and encourage one another. I ask for these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.